Okay, so we're going to uh, start this week's um, class. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it is on Parshat Emor. Now, Parshat Emor is the Torah portion in which God commands the Kohanim concerning their behavior. So because the Kohanim, so who are the Kohanim? Let's start from the top. Who are the Kohanim? So Jacob's third son, Levi, they became the Levites. Levi, Levites. Now within that tribe, when it came to Moses, Moses was told by God that he should make his brother Aharon the priest, the Kohen. And God said that all the sons of the male Kohen will be Kohanim. So this is paternal. It is not a tribe for itself. Rather, it is a family from the Levi tribe that became Kohanim. And a lot of Kohanim, when it came time to take um, surnames, which uh, wasn't always there, but when it came time to take surnames, a lot of them took the name Katz, which is two Hebrew letters, which stands for Kohen Sedek, a righteous Kohen, or Katzmen, or Kohen. Uh, these are all names that were taken. And obviously, um, you can be a Kohen without a last name of Kohen, Katzmen, or Katz. For example, my last name is Lipschitz, and we are Kohanim. And that has to do a lot with why the last names were taken. Um, for example, Lipschitz is actually, I've met a Lipschitz who is a Levi. I've met a Lipschitz who is an Israelite. And uh, really researched, uh, it says that um, the people from a city in Poland called Leipzig took the last name Lipschitz. Another thing that happened in, in Europe uh, during the war and before the war was in order to avoid being drafted into the army, the law was that if you had an only child, they would not draft the child. So what happened was that two brothers, one would take the father's surname and one would take the mother's maiden surname. So you can actually have two brothers with different last names and, um, and therefore you wouldn't always, so you can't really tell by the last name of a person whether they are a Kohen or not. The only way to know if you're a Kohen or not is to have been told by your father, your father's father, so forth and so on. Um, and even if you weren't told, uh, one of the ways we know today is when you look at the tombstones, um, so the Kohanim, there was a custom back in the day that the Kohen would have the hand figure in which they would do the priestly blessings um, uh, placed on the tombstone. Another way is to look at the marriage contract, the Ketuba, uh, would say if it's a Kohen or not. So that's really how we know. Now, I want to share with you that they have found a specific marker in the DNA of Kohanim. And interestingly enough, that marker is passed down 
that genetic marker is passed down only paternally, which is interesting because that's how the tribe works. Um, if your mother is a daughter of a Kohen and your father is not a Kohen, you are not a Kohen. If your father is a Kohen and your mother is not the daughter of a Kohen, you are a Kohen. So it's through the paternal lineage. However, that marker will not work. And let me share with you why. So if you have a Kohen man who marries a non-Jewish woman, now they have a son. That son is not Jewish, but he has a Kohen marker he genetically received from his father. Now, this son of a Kohen who's not Jewish later converts. I'm just giving an example. When he converts, he does not become a Kohen, he becomes an Israelite. So now we have an Israelite with a Kohen marker. Now he goes ahead and gets married and his children are all gonna have this Kohen marker, but they're not, they're not Kohanim. So even the marker won't work. So really the only way we can validate if someone is a Kohen is if they know their father and their father's father and the father's father's father was a Kohen. Now, the Talmud says the way to know for sure that you're a Kohen is to be able to have a family tree that would go back to someone in your paternal lineage that served at the altar. Now, the Holy Temple was destroyed close to 2,000 years ago. So how would we do that? So what happened in Jewish history is just like with King David, how does anyone know they come from King David? And what happens is that there are certain people in the much more recent history that were famous people that had their lineage well-established to David HaMelech or to a Kohen that served at the Holy Temple. Now, what would happen is that we don't have to go now all the way back and connect ourselves to someone who worked at the altar or to King David himself. Rather, we would go to one of these famous people who would have printed in their book their lineage. And by connecting to them, you would know that you are a Kohen Tzedek. Now, in my case, for example, my father's father's father before the war had such a lineage tree which took him to a very famous Kohen who had printed his lineage to someone that was in the times of the temple. That is the way you would establish such a thing. So this week's Torah portion begins with the laws of a Kohen. Now, why do the Kohanim have special laws? Very simple. Because the Kohanim were separated from the rest of the Jewish people and obligated to dedicate themselves to the Holy Temple, therefore they had laws which did not apply to other Jewish people. For example, going to a funeral is not only permissible, it is actually a mitzvah and considered the greatest act of kindness. Because whenever we do a kindness to a living person, we're actually building investment. We never know when we may need this person. But when you give honor to a person who passed away, 
then you know that what you're doing is for no ulterior motive. So it's actually called chesed shel emes, a benevolence of truth. Now, going to a funeral is a mitzvah. However, going to a funeral renders the person impure because now he has come in contact with the, a, a dead body and a dead body carries impurity. So therefore, such a person would become impure. If you're impure, you're not allowed to go into the holy temple. You're not allowed to participate in the sacrifices of the holy temple. So for anyone who's not a Kohen, that would not be an issue. The only time it would be an issue is before Passover because Passover is an obligatory time for everyone on the 14th day of Nisan to bring and to eat from the Passover sacrifice, which is considered sanctified flesh, which you cannot eat if you're impure. So therefore, that is the only time where everyone has to make sure that they're pure. But let's say you had to bring any other sacrifice, whether it be the sacrifice of gratitude because a miracle happened for you, or whether it be a sin offering because you did a sin, or whether whatever sacrifice, it's not tied to a specific time. So if you're impure, you would just go through the seven-day process with the sprinkling of the red heifer and bring the sacrifice afterwards. So there is no problem with any Jew other than the Kohen to allow themselves to become impure. Now, I just want to say, normally when we use the word impure, it has the negative connotation of sin. That is not what we're talking about here. So, when a person becomes impure, it's very simple. Just stay away from the holy temple. The Kohen, because they were divided into families that had specific times that they were obligated to show up and work in the temple, and because they always had to be ready to work in the temple, therefore, a Kohen is not allowed to become impure. Hence, the Torah portion tells us that a Kohen is only allowed to go to seven funerals. And I say seven, I don't mean the number seven. I mean seven different categories of relatives. Father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter, and wife. Now, sister is specifically unmarried sister. Now, I want to share with you what this means. Because the Torah specifically says father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, and wife, I was not able to be inside the chapel, and I had to stay a distance from the coffin of my own grandfather and grandmother by their funerals. So, of course, I was there, but I was not able to actually participate actively in the funeral because grandparents are not of the seven. So it's really serious about not participating in a funeral. Um, only under extreme cases have I ever officiated a funeral. For example, I, would offic I have officiated a funeral where the chapel was set up with everyone facing the door and I stood outside and from the outside, I officiated the funeral because of the family that it was 
you know, whose father it was, and I had to officiate. Um, I once officiated at a cemetery on the condition that they were buried in the last row, and I actually stood on the other side of the fence where there was tall um, uh, trees, uh, bushes, brush, and I actually stood on a car with a microphone because that woman had no family and I had to officiate. So even when we do officiate, it has to be under the terms where we are in no form or fashion in danger to become impure as a Kohen. So those are the laws about a Kohen. A high priest, a Kohen Gadol, may not even go out for any of these seven relatives. Hence, you will see that Aaron couldn't even participate in his two sons' funerals. So these are the laws of the Kohen. Now, there are other laws involved, too, about marriages, who the Kohen's allowed to marry. And all of these laws have to do with this one concept that God says, I have sanctified them to work in the temple. Now, there are other laws. For example, the verse says that you should always place them the Kohen first when it comes to honors. For example, when you call up the people for the different readings of the Torah, the first one goes to the Kohen, the second one goes to the Levite, and then thereafter goes to the Israelites. Only the Maftir can then again go to the Kohen or the Levite. Uh, when you're doing grace after meal and you honor someone to lead, you're supposed to give the Kohen. In a situation where you don't give the Kohen, when the person who's leading leads the benching and he says, Rabotai, Nevarech, Benchin, he then says, Mirishut HaKohanim, with the permission of the Kohanim. So there are laws in which the Kohen, out of respect, not to this human individual, but out of respect to the service in the holy temple, we treat the Kohen with specific respect. Now, these are the laws that it talks about. It forewarns the Kohen that if in any form or shape he is impure, he should not show up from the temple. He should not eat any of the holy foods that's given to the Kohen, whether it be the truma or whether it be the parts of the sacrifices and all those laws. From there, it goes into the laws of the blemishes of a Kohen. What happens if a Kohen is a handicap? Then he's not allowed to do the major services in the Holy Temple. And then it talks about what happens if the animal that's brought as a sacrifice has blemishes here too, because beings able to serve in God out of uh, serve in the Holy Temple to God, you have to be complete. And that's the laws of the Kohanim and the sacrifices. And then it talks about the laws of, of the daughter of a Kohen, um, has a special status about her level of fidelity and the punishment, if God forbid, she commits infidelity. Um, and then it talks about different laws of the sacrifices. Uh, for example, you cannot take a, a calf from its mother within the first eight days of its birth to use it as a sacrifice. And then after all of this, it starts talking about the holidays. So the first part is about the Kohen, the laws of the Kohen, 
And from there, we roll over into the laws of the sacrifice, how everything has to be complete without blemishes, pure and sanctified. And then it talks about the holidays. Now, I want to share with you, we talk about the Shabbat and we talk about all the holidays. And the holidays start from Passover, the counting of the Omer, the Shavuot, which is the day in which the Torah was given. And then we go to Rosh Hashanah, the New Year's. We go to Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the year, which is the Day of Atonement. And then we talk about Sukkot. Those are the biblical holidays. Purim and Hanukkah you will not find in the Torah because they were established well after the Torah was completed and the times of Moses. Now, I want to share with you a brief perspective of what the, the holidays really represent. And then I want to talk about the topic of education, um, which is a primary focus of this week's Torah portion. So what are sacrifice, what are holidays all about? For starters, holidays belong to the category of mitzvot called edut, testimony. So there are statutes, mitzvot that we do not know logical reasons for. There are judgments, which we do understand. And then there are testimonies, which on our own, we would not have maybe thought of it, but once it's told to us, it makes sense. For example, would you and I of our own have realized that we should eat matzah on Pesach? Not necessarily. Would you and I of our own have thought that we should sit in the hut of Sukkot to remember that God kept us in a hut and surrounded us with clouds of glory in the, in the desert? No. But once it's told to us, it makes sense. On the other hand, thou shall not murder, thou shall not uh, steal, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall honor thy father and mother. Those are commandments that even if God didn't tell it to us, it would make sense. And then there are the laws such as kosher, as mixing in your garments, linen, not to mix in your garments, linen and wool. These are mitzvot, even after they're told to us, it, we don't have a logical reason for it. Now, with this being said, let's go back to the testimonies. So the testimonies are basically the way someone told it to me in Shul the Shabbat, all the Jewish holidays boil down to, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. What are holidays really about? So first and foremost, I wanna share with you that holidays is the importance of gratitude. We take for granted that which is done for us. And not only that, but because we take it for granted, we take it as a precedence. And now we have a sense of entitlement. And when it doesn't happen for us, these miracles, we're like, oh, what's going on here? Why isn't God doing his job? So the first and foremost and most important lesson to learn from any of the holidays is the importance of gratitude. Gratitude, acknowledge that miracles are done, see them, acknowledge them, and be grateful for them. And do not take them for granted. So that's the first reason we celebrate holidays. Now let's go to a more mystical level of why we celebrate holidays. So in the circle of time, right? Time is a circle, right? It keeps on 
repeating itself, right? The whole year cycle, the orbits and everything. Now, I want to share with you, we're going to get a little bit mystical, and I want to just share with you what that means. The Zohar says that the verse in Genesis is peculiar because it doesn't say that in six days God created the world, the heaven and the earth. Rather, it says six days. Now, our sage at the Zohar tells us what this is telling us is that six days isn't just a time frame. How long did it take God for to create the world? Six days. No. What it actually is telling us is the tools that God used to create the world. And what are those tools? Those tools are the six days. Now, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that the six days are tools? So the Zohar explains that the supernal six days are the six emotion emanations. Now, what that means is the first emanation, Sfira, is called chesed, kindness, revelation. On the first day, God created light, revelation. On the second emanation, which is givura, which is strength, contraction, boundaries, strictness, God separated. He gathered the waters, created the boundaries between the water and the earth and between heaven and earth. Now, you can keep on going through all the six emanations and you'll see how every day there was a different emanation which was the tool of creation, and that's why those creations took place on that day. For example, on the sixth day, the sixth emanation is Yesod. Yesod literally means foundation. On the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve, the human being, which is the foundation of the universe. So what does that mean to us? What that means is that the divinity the revelation of God's presence in this world throughout the weekdays is called emotions. What is that? So I will share with you that the word for this six emotions in the Zohar and in Kabbalah is Zeir Anpin, which literally means in Aramaic, small faces, because the emotion emanations are the smallest emanations of the 10 emanations, which means that the revelation of God's presence on a regular manic Monday is at a low level. And that's why on these days, we can go about primarily taking care of our needs. We can work, we can do our stuff. Now, on Shabbat, there is a higher emanation. We are taught in Kabbalah that Shabbat is the emanation of kingship, which is the vessel for the revelation of the emanation of wisdom. Wisdom is the first of the 10 emanations and the largest revelation. Hence on Shabbat, because there is such a revelation and dominance of God's presence, therefore we have to behave accordingly and we're not allowed to work, we're not allowed to cook, it's a day of rest. It's a day of consciousness. It's a day of presence in prayer and in Torah study. And even our meal has to be done with a consciousness and respect of making kiddush, making hamotzi, and sitting at the table, at the Shabbos table with respect. There has to be a tablecloth on the table, so forth and so on.
on holidays, it's not the first emanation, but rather it's the second emanation, which is the emanation of wisdom, I'm sorry, of understanding. Now, understanding is a step down from wisdom. So on one hand, in that emanation, on the days of a holidays, you're not allowed to work because it's still of the intellect emanations, which is high presence and high revelation. However, because it's understanding and not wisdom, and in understanding there is the I, I understand, I roll up my sleeves and I'm going to engage intellectually. Therefore, there's allowed to be cooking on the holidays. Shabbat, which is wisdom, Wisdom is the, is the basically open up to receive, don't engage, don't feel the presence of I, rather open up to receive, and hence you're not allowed to even cook. So now we're understanding that really when we talk about weekdays, we talk about Shabbat, we talk about holidays, on a Kabbalistic level, what we're really talking about is the different levels of the revelation and presence of God, which reflects itself in the demand of our consciousness of God's presence. Hence, all the laws of a weekday, all the laws of a holiday, and all the laws of a Shabbat. So now that we understand that what's really taking place is that time, from a Kabbalistic perspective, is nothing more than a vessel to a divine emanation. Hence, we have holy time and mundane time, depending on what revelation from which emanation is shining through that vessel of time, that hour, that day. Okay, so now we understand the categories, the mundane weekdays, the holidays, and the holy Shabbat. Now I want to take it to the next level. In more detail, the great Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Ari HaKadosh, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, the Isaac Luria, Kabbalah, which he lived in Svas a good 500 years ago. He lived in the times of Bet Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Cairo. They knew each other. They both lived in Svat. So the Arizal gives us great insight that each holiday is in more detailed, okay, they're all from this greater revelation, but in detail, they manifest themselves as a different gateway to a different potential and relationship with God. Now, let me just quickly take you through the holidays as I've been taught the gateways. So I heard from the Rebbe, of blessed and saintly memory, that Rosh Hashanah is the gateway to the all, the, the general, all-powerful Moda Ani experience. So every morning, we have a mini moment that when we wake up, we put our hands together, we bow our head, and we say, Moda Ani Lefanecha, I thankfully acknowledge that you returned my soul to me, right? giving me another day of life. Rosh Hashanah is the capital and the powerful gateway to that Moda Ani experience. So on Rosh Hashanah, we're completely absorbed and immersed 
into a far omnipotent power of that acceptance and gratitude that God is giving us life. Now let's talk about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we do Teshuvah every day. And every day after that Midah and the morning prayers, we do our pardon services. At Mincha, the afternoon services, we do our pardon services. Before we go to bed and we say to Shema Yisrael, we do the pardon services. And Teshuvah can be done in any place at any moment. However, the great gateway of the omnipotent experience of Teshuvah is on Yom Kippur. So that holiday is a gateway which opens up for us to be able to draw this concept of doing repentance and being forgiven and atoned into our year. Jumping further, Sukkot. Sukkot, where we leave our home and go into the hut. What is that? That is the gateway to trust. Even when things seem unsafe, insecure, I'm not in the big brick house with the lock and everything. Nevertheless, we have the gateway to be able to trust God in times of uncertainty. So, of course, that exists in every day of our life. But the gateway in which we can draw this is Sukkot, which takes us to another level in Sukkot. Because only when we feel secure can we have joy. Joy and worry are mutually exclusive. Hence, Sukkot, which is the gateway to trust, is also the gateway to joy, as we say, Zman Simchatenu, the season of our joy. Jumping forward to the next holiday would be Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the gateway into transforming darkness into light. It's the gateway of being able to bring the warmth of the inside into the coldness of the outside. Bring the light of the inside into the darkness of the outside. The next holiday is going to be Purim. Purim is the gateway for self-sacrifice, just total self-sacrifice going against my own temptations, my own yearning. Self-sacrifice doesn't necessarily mean to die for God. The greater self-sacrifice is to live for God. So that can happen at any moment, but Purim is the gateway where we can draw buckets of this energy into our life. Then we have, I'm sorry, then we have Pesach. Pesach is the gateway of liberation. What is the definition of liberation? As I've shared many times with you on this platform, it means that not only I don't have other people telling me what to do, but rather I don't have my own instincts, impulses, and drives controlling what I do. I can tell myself no when I want to, and I can tell myself yes even when I don't want to. So that concept of being a free person, being able to truly have freedom of choice to do what's right and to live in accordance with my morals and principles, that gateway is Passover. Then there's the days between Passover and, and, um, and Shavuot, which is called the counting of the Omer. 
Those are the 49 days, which is the gateway of particular self-refinement to deal by emotion after emotion, to remove it from the egocentric realm into the theocentric realm. So the first week is the week of refining love. What drives my love? The second week is defining fear. There is healthy fear and there is unhealthy fear. The second week of the Omer is where I work on the particulars of the unhealthy fear, building from it the healthy fears. Then the next holiday, the final holiday that we're going to talk about now, is the holiday of Shavuot, the holiday of receiving the Torah. That is the gateway for acceptance and obedience in the study of Torah. Because Shavuot is all about we will do and we will hear. And from that perspective, to engage intellectually with what God is teaching us. So that means that each one of the holidays, besides it being the vessel of time for a greater, a greater revelation emanation than the plain lower emanations that was placed into the manic Monday and weekdays of Mother Nature, the Shabbat and the holidays is higher levels of emanation shining through the vessels of time. And now you know that more in detail, each holiday and so to Shabbat, each one is a gateway to a very specific energy that our soul has in its faculties to be able to absorb it and to then utilize it. Now, this is going to take us to the next step of what that result says. The verse says, Hayamim ha'elu niskarim vina'asim. These days are remembered and done. And the simple, the simple meaning behind that is, A, we remember what was done on these days in the times of old, and we do the laws of the celebration of that holiday. <coughs> Excuse me. Darizal says no. Darizal says, that now he doesn't say no, he says a deeper meaning. He says that what the verse is really telling us is by through remembering, reliving the holiday, we are reenacting and reopening that portal and that gateway. So now we're hearing something really beautiful. When we talk about gratitude, we're talking about gratitude in the present for what took, what took place in the past. But now that we understand that the holiday is not just about a gratitude of the past, but an enactment of the present, which is why I'll just share with you one story, a story that I know. So this person was having a very difficult challenge, really very difficult challenge, and he asked the Rebbe for a blessing. And he was dealing with simple issues, very scary issues that were going on in his life. And the Rebbe didn't answer him. He wrote him before Pesach and the Rebbe didn't answer him. After Pesach, he wrote again to the Rebbe, Rebbe, it's really, it's timely and it's very dangerous. And I'm asking the Rebbe for a help. The Rebbe didn't answer me. And the Rebbe said like this, I didn't answer you because I was hoping to see you by the Pesach Fabrengen. 
There's a Fabrengen called Sudat Mashiach at the end of Pesach, which the Rebbe would wash on matzah, and there would be a Fabrengen going on for hours. We would say Lachayim to the Rebbe. The Rebbe would answer us Lachayim. There'd be Torah words. There would be songs. It would be a beautiful Fabrengen. And the Rebbe said, I was hoping to see you then because with that energy of Pesach, redemption, we could have taken care of your problems very quickly and very easily. But you weren't there, so I couldn't help you take care of it then. Now we're going to take care of it, but it's not going to be that easy. The point of the story I'm sharing with you is that the Rebbe is clearly telling us here that when it's a holiday and certain energies and certain portals and gateways are open to extreme powerful faculties of our soul, those are opportunity days where we can take care of issues in a quicker way, in an easier way, and a more pleasant way. Hence, we now understand the verse of the holidays opens up, Ele Moade Hashem. These are the holidays of God. They're not the holidays of God. They're our holidays being grateful for what God did to us. No. God is telling us that these are his holidays in which he brings greater revelation and openness and accessibility and gateways and portals open up for us if we live the holiday today. Hence, we now understand the beauty of holidays. Now, uh, we don't have much time, but I wanna briefly share with you a little bit about education. So the opening of the Torah is very repetitious. And God told Moses, tell Aaron, say to what God said, told, say, why? So our sages say that when God says say, he's telling the Kohanim to say. But what do you mean he's telling the Kohanim to say? He's actually telling Moses to tell Aaron, to tell the Kohanim what they have to do. So our sages say no. He's also telling the Kohanim, Emor, I'm giving you the obligation to say. Say who? What? Lahazir hagdolim alaktanim. That the adults should educate the youth. So now we understand that the Torah portion is called Emor, and the secret of Emor is the obligation of education. So now I want to share with you something that has changed drastically in the world of education. Education once upon a time in the shtetl, even when I grew up in Borough Park, the job of the parent was to protect the child, to keep him in a relatively closed and small environment so that he or she would not be exposed to that which they should not be exposed to. And that's how our parents kept us in a spiritual mindset, in a spiritual upbringing, in a spiritual life. However, today, that won't work. Today, if you have a computer with internet or your child has a smartphone, or today every child gets on a plane and goes and comes, I don't care what kind of filters you have, statistics say, that children as young as six years old have already been exposed, unfortunately, to porn. 
and so too to everything else. On the internet, you can find out how to make a bomb. You can go ahead and see horrific stories that's taking place all over the world. We didn't know about this once upon a time. We lived in our little world and then, you know, everything was monitored and we didn't have this notion. And all of a sudden, we can't protect our kids from all that we were protected from. So what is education today? And the answer is that today, our job is not to protect our kids because we won't be able to. Rather, our job today is to empower our kids. So if we're just going to continue the old-fashioned way of, no, my kid has no idea what this is. Surprise. So therefore, we can't protect our children from ever having to face things. Rather, we're going to need to empower them when they do face things. Now, based on this, I want to share, I'm sorry. Based on this, I want to share with you another concept, and that is that another change in education is that we went from the masculine form of education to the feminine world of education. Now, I don't just mean men or women. What I actually mean is that in the olden days, even women embraced the masculine form of education. And today, even the men embrace the feminine form. What does that mean? What that means is that when I was a child, no parent, neither teachers nor principals was having any workshop days or reading books about child psychology. Just didn't exist. It was very simple. The kid was labeled either good or bad, easy to educate or a troublemaker. And the one and only solution for a troublemaker was punitive, break him, cut him down so that he will fit into the cookie cutter. Today, thank God, it's a whole new world. We're not educating by imposing, but rather we're embracing individuality and we're embracing understanding the child and understanding today that it's not one size fits all. And there are kids who are going to be gifted with the right side of the brain, kids that are going to be gifted with the left side of the brain, kids that are going to be gifted academically, kids that are going to be gifted emotionally, and everything needs to be embraced. And let's take it to a step further. In the olden days, if a grandfather was taking his two grandchildren in a stroller for a walk, and they were asked, oh, these are your grandchildren, oh, who are they? He would answer, oh, this one's the doctor and this one's the lawyer. Because we had already an image that we were going to impose upon our offspring. Today, we don't do that. I mean, everyone at their own level. But today, we embrace that every child has their own personality. And there is personality types, which today we can get tested and see which jobs, which professions would work best for us. So all of this working with the individual, empowering the individual, is all a whole new format. So of course, it all begins with the identity. We need to give a child an identity.
And I want to briefly say what that means. In the world of individuality, we are dealing with a, I, I want to use the word of noxious retardation in which the individuality seems to be the only part of my identity that has to exist. Absolutely not, my friends. The first thing about our identity is I am a part of the human race and I have global responsibilities. I have responsibilities to the water, the seas, the animals, the, the rainforest. The, the, what, I have responsibilities. I have responsibilities concerning recycling. I have responsibilities not only to Mother Earth and to all the other creatures we share this planet with, but I have a responsibility to the human race. I have a responsibility to my country. I have a responsibility to my people. I have a responsibility to my community. I have a responsibility to my family. So before we talk about individuality, we need to know that the primary foundation of my identity is actually not about my individuality, but my responsibilities that I share as part of a holistic world that I live in. And that's why I always told my children, you have a last name and a first name. The last name is your family identity. Your first name is your individual identity. Now, once you have a strong foundation and acceptance and respect of the identity of which you are part of a greater whole, now let's take it to the next level and embrace your individuality. How are you going to share the beauty of being a human being who was created in the image of God? Embrace the gifts, the individual talents and gifts, because you are the only you that exists in this world. Now, with that being said, by being able to embrace the strength and empowerment of who we are as part of a holistic whole, and who we are as an individual, understanding our morals, our principles, and our goals. Now I want to take you to a very brief scene in Alice in Wonderland. Alice comes to a crossroad, and there is the white rabbit, and she asked the white rabbit, which direction should I take? And the rabbit asks her, well, where are you heading to? And Alice says, nowhere in particular. And the rabbit answers, then it doesn't really make a difference which road you take. If we don't have an identity of self and a respect to who we are, what our goals are, what our morals and principles and standards are, what we are as a part of a holistic whole and what we are as an individual, then we're not empowered to deal with any temptation. The power of telling a temptation no is founded upon knowing who I am and where I'm going to. Hence, let's go to the story of Pinocchio. Pinocchio earns to become a human when he's finally willing to understand that I can say no to things that aren't part of my goal and journey in life, which is going to lead me to one more concept, and then we'll wrap it up. There is a notion of being open-minded. 
Now, I will share with you, it is of utmost importance to be open-minded. Closed-mindedness is synonymous with ignorance. Now, does open-mindedness mean that I have to embrace, justify, and legitimize everyone's opinion, everyone's choices? Is it okay for me to be open-minded and yet believe that this is wrong, this is illegitimate, this is something which I don't want to be part of and I don't want to endorse? So sometimes the words open-mindedness and compassionate is the ultimate expression of closed-mindedness to accept any form of doctrine, every, any form of individual commitment and devotion to certain morals and certain principles. Now, the difference between being open-minded in a healthy way and being judgmental, that's a different story. I can be open-minded in this embrace. I can love every human being without accepting and endorsing every one of their choices and definitely without being judgmental. But I need to know who I am and what I believe in and what I stand for before I can choose what are the choices I am okay with making. So I want to just wrap this up by saying education is understanding two primary sins of parents. One primary sin of a parent is that they think that having children is the art of cloning. I want my kid to be just like I, and I am the clone of my parent, who is the clone of his parent. Having children is not cloning. Anyone who has more than one child will tell you immediately that none of their two child children are identical. And if you have only one child, you will learn very quickly that your one child is dead set in letting you know that he, he or she is not your clone. So one, cardinal sin of parenting is which is the opposite of empowering is to say no you have to be like me then there is another cardinal sin in which the parent tries to live the life they didn't get to live through their kids that's the opposite extreme and as fatal so what we need to do is we need to empower our children based upon a healthy identity of self as part of a holistic universe, part of a holistic race, part of a holistic people, part of a holistic community, part of a holistic family to embrace their individuality. And with this sentence, I close. The hardest thing for a parent to accept is that their primary function is to make their function unnecessary in their child's life. I want to say that again. The primary function of a parent is to make their function of parenting unnecessary. What that means is that our job is to create and, and, and mold and empower children that can stand on their own two feet 
make their own decisions and live their own life based on a holistic understanding of morals and principles and commitment. And I am finished for today. God bless you all.